Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. And when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flowers fade. All right, well, good morning. I am not the pastor here. Um, Kevin skipped town. He took his little portable um, Britney Spears mic with him, left me with this thing. So I feel like I'm at a lectern right now, and I'm going to teach or exposit some Ph.D. class. Um, my name is Hunter. Most of you know that. If you don't know me, I'm a member here. Um, and let me just start by saying it is a, a real privilege to be able to take this pulpit um, when Kevin asked me to do so. I love, love preaching. I hope you guys get, y'all are super encouraging, but I, I hope it, you get something out of Sunday mornings when I'm up here because it, it means a great deal to me. And I, um, I think about you. Maybe that's weird to say, but I think about you guys in the week or weeks leading up to preaching, um, especially as I've, I've preached more and more because I think about what do our people need? What does this text mean to, to CTK? What does it mean to the Figgins? What does it mean to Tyler? What does it mean to Matthew? What does it mean to the Abshires? What does it mean to the Criswells and the rest of you I didn't name? And so let me just say, um, I really thoroughly enjoy preaching, and I hope it is a, a gift, and God uses it, if nothing else, through the reading of the Word. And I sit down and we, we pray, and that, that's, that could be all I do, and, and God will speak through His Word. He is sure, and He is on the throne, as we just sang, uh, and He is sovereign, and He upholds His Word, and not a word goes out that doesn't accomplish all that he sets out for it to do. Um, and that is the confidence that we take with this pulpit each and every Sunday, Kevin included, no doubt. Um, but let me just say, I wouldn't be up here if it weren't for a handful of uh, men and women who uh, were with me on Thursday night, uh, into the throes of the night, and on Friday night, helping me to move all of our stuff across a very large river over I-20 and a bridge. So we, um, maybe that was kind of obscure, and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Sorry, let me just say it plainly. So we sold our house and bought a house. Uh, we closed on Friday afternoon, um, but all our stuff was with the, with the help of a few of you guys. So Matthew, uh, Brett, Ansley, Josh, who else? Braley, and uh, Corey, Corey Bacher. Anybody else I'm, I'm missing? I told him I would give him a shout out. So this is their <laughs> shout out. 
This is their shout out. I, like I said, I'd still be toting stuff across the bridge there on I-20. Um, so really grateful for that. And let me just say, I, we feel very loved as a congregation. And that is what the church is for, is to give to, to each as they have need um, and, and to be the arms and the hands and feet of Jesus and to embody him physically uh, to a needy people and to a watching world. And so I just want to thank you guys um, from my heart, from my family's heart, and we appreciate that. All right, before we move into our text and I get to some semblance of a crafted uh, message that will probably protect the rest of this time for us, uh, let me pray over our time. Father, we thank you that your word does go forth and accomplishes all that you have set out for it to do. Lord, I pray that the preaching of your word this morning would serve to encourage the body of Christ, that it would bear fruit in our lives, and ultimately, God, it would glorify you and the earth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible and you aren't already there, I'm going to kind of move away from this. It feels weird, so I hope the recording hits, but if not, I can just send the manuscript out to the internet, whatever. Um, but if you aren't already there, go ahead and turn to Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're in verses 12 through 21. Uh, and last week we kicked off 2 Peter, and as Kevin mentioned, this book was originally lit, uh, written as a letter by the Apostle Peter, so one of the OG disciples, if you will, to a church plant in Asia Minor. And like most of, if not maybe all of the churches in the New Testament, and even like many of the churches uh, that are planting and thriving in the world today outside of the context of the United States, this was a church that was constantly under fire. So in Peter's first letter to the church, 1 Peter, right, uh, the, the church was under the onslaught of physical persecution. These are the fiery trials Peter spoke of, I believe, in chapter 3 of his letter. But here in the second letter, 2 Peter the church here in Asia Minor is under a different form of persecution. And this time, it's not so much physical in nature as it is doctrinal or theological. So Peter is writing this, this letter both to defend the biblical gospel and to encourage God's people to keep the faith and to finish the race. As Kevin mentioned last week, Peter is likely writing this letter from the confines of a Roman jail cell, and he believes he is living out his last days on earth. Scholars think this letter was written somewhere between 60 and 65 AD, which puts Peter uh, probably in his mid to late 70s. And so that's no spring chicken, right? This is before the advent of Tylenol and Centrum Silver and Weight Watchers and all of that. And on top of that, Peter remembers Christ's prophetic words to him in John 21, where Jesus alluded to the way in which Peter would die. And it sounds a lot like Peter's current circumstances. And so there's a lot of evidence, a large body of evidence to support Peter's belief that he is, in fact, uh, living out his last days, and it won't be much longer until Jesus calls him home. And as is often the case, with the awareness of Peter's impending death, it brings clarity and conviction to his remaining life. And so Peter, in this letter, says what he believes he must say. He says what he can't leave unsaid, which means that we should pay special attention to Peter's words here because they are words he wants to be remembered by, and he wants to make each and every one count. And so last week, Peter laid out the consequences for either staying the course and keeping the faith, which he said would lead to salvation, or of kind of letting off the gas and compromising to culture, which he said would lead to ineffectiveness, unfruitfulness, and potentially 
to falling away from the faith altogether. And so because of these massive implications, eternal implications even, by the time we get to verses 12 through 21, Peter is telling his people how it is they do that. Right? How do they keep the faith? How do they persevere amidst persecution? And he is arguing as to why they should do that. I've titled this morning's message, Words of Witness, because that's what Peter is doing here as he's writing to the church in Asia Minor. Peter is witnessing to the glory of the gospel, to the fallacy of false gospels, and to how it is the church perseveres in the midst of the mess they find themselves in. And he does it with three distinct words. So first we have a word of reminder, a word of reminder. Second, we have a word on Christ, a word on Christ. And lastly, we'll look at a word on the word. So again, a word of reminder, a word on Christ, and a word on the word. First, a word of reminder. Look with me again, if you will, at verses 12 through 15. Peter says this, Therefore, so he's picking up everything he just said in verses 1 through 11. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and you're established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. And so again, Peter is on his deathbed here. He knows his days are numbered, and he knows that both the continuation of the church and the gospel are at stake in Asia Minor. And so if Peter wants to say something, now is the time to do it. Right? But rather than coming up with some sexy new spin-off of the gospel, or maybe building up his brand and kind of patting his own ego, Peter chooses to double down on the things he has already said to the church. He continues to build up and shore up the gospel he's already preached. And in just these four verses, Peter uses the words remind, reminder, and recall. So Peter is bringing the past and he's dragging it into the present tense. And what Peter is effectively doing here is he is saying to the church that what he gave them to begin with is all they need. They simply need to stay the course and remember the things he already taught them which is why he's here to remind them of it over and over and over again. It's the text from Deuteronomy we read earlier. Don't forget, that's what God said in the Old Testament all the time. The, the original, this is way off script, but just if you go back, the original commandment in the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath, when we get to Deuteronomy, God's uh, commandment there to Moses and his people is to remember the Sabbath. Like you forgot it? Just remember it. And that's what Peter's saying here in the New Testament. The gospel I preach to you is all you need. This, there's no bonuses to the house. There's no additions. It's all you need. Just stay the course, okay? Don't try and get wise. Don't try and get fancy. And so what is it that Peter is reminding the church to do? What is it he wants them to come back to over and over and over again? Well, he says it in verse 12. He says, I want to remind you of, and if you have the ESV, it says these qualities. If you look in verse 15, he says he wants the church to be able to call to mind these things at any time. And the qualities or the things that Peter is talking about here are the character traits listed in verses 5 through 7. So go, go back just a little bit, a few verses to verses 5 through 7. Peter says this. I'm going to read it for us. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, 
and godliness with brother, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, if you have pretty much any other translation aside from the ESV there, verse 12, when you look at it, kind of going back, probably just says Peter wants to remind you of these things. Right? And again, you probably have these things in verse 15. So how do we know Peter is specifically talking about verses 5 through 7 in verses 12 through 15? And he's not just saying, hey, remember the gospel in general. Remember the gospel at large, right? Remember the bridge diagram, if any of you know that. Well, we know that because right after Peter lists these qualities in verses 5 through 7, he brings them up again in verse 8. And he does it with the Greek pronoun hoitos. Okay, it's fun to say. But hoitos just means this or these. Peter then continues to use this pronoun in verses 9, 10, 12, and 15. So instead of saying this large verbiage of verses 5 through 7, he's just kind of dropping it in with this word hoitos as he goes along in the chapter. So Peter says this in verse 8, For if these qualities, hoitos, are yours, and they are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again in verse 9, If you lack these qualities, hoitos, you show yourselves to be blind, and that you have forgotten God's grace in your life. Again, in verse 10, Peter for the win. All the, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, hoitos, you will never fail. And so because of what these things do, or rather what the pursuit of these things do, notice Peter's goal here is not attainment. He's not saying you have to have all of these in spades. It is not perfection Peter is after. It is a persistent pursuit of holiness. And because of what that produces in us, Peter's doing everything he can, and he's calling us to do everything we can to strive for sanctification and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he puts the emphasis on the beginning of verse 5 that he does there. Look again at verse 5. Peter says, Make every effort... Literally do everything you can to bring this list into your life, to make this a reality. In short, to strive for holiness. Now, Kevin said it last week, but I think it is worth repeating here because this could be easy to uh, hear something I'm not saying here or maybe to read between the lines. This is not a call for works-based righteousness. Not a call for works-based righteousness. First of all, these are qualities of the character. These are internal traits. They're not external works. But even so, this is not not about us hustling for Jesus. This is about a heart that has been redeemed, responding to the grace of its Redeemer. And when that happens, it produces in us an inexhaustible energy when ignited with the Holy Spirit to see God's kingdom come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And ground zero for that work is not our mailing address. It's not our workplace. It is the confines of our very own heart. Remember Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 23 with the Pharisees, he called them whitewashed tombs, right? So they're all about this veneer on the external, how they look. And Jesus said what? He said, if you clean the inside of the cup, the outside will be clean. Or again, you change the the root of the tree, the fruit will take care of itself. You're trying to puncture and and staple apples on a dead fig tree. Ain't going to happen. Just put apple seeds in the ground, right? You get good apples. The gospel has to transform our hearts before it can ever get to our hands. So this is not about workspace righteousness. But it does take work. 
As Dallas Willard once wisely said, grace is opposed to earning, not effort. Grace is opposed to earning, not effort. And it was the Apostle Paul who said he worked harder than all the other apostles, right? But he said it wasn't me working, which means that he can't take the credit. It was the grace of God working in and through him, which means that God gets all the glory. And Peter is calling his church and ours to do the same, to make every effort empowered by the grace of God, infused with the spirit of God, to pursue the nature and character of God. So Peter doesn't see this as a side hustle, right? For Peter, this is the main thing. Make every effort. That's not a few hours a week, right? That's all the time. Peter sees the daily Christian life as an intentional striving for sanctification and a deliberate growing in grace. And hear me, guys, this has to be deliberate, right? This has to be on purpose. Holiness does not just happen to us as if by accident. It is not the law of gravity. It is the exception. It must be sought after, cultivated, and calculated. Listen to this quote. It's kind of lengthy from D.A. Carson, but he nails it with this. I love this. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition, or in this case, false gospels, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. That's what happens when the car is in neutral. That is where we drift to. Because that's the current of our sin-sick soul, and that's the current of our sinful society. Life as a Christian is not a joyride down the lazy river of moral conservative religion. It is an upstream struggle against the forces of uh, war, the forces of hell, excuse me, still waging war in our hearts, and the forces of hell waging war in the world. And if we let our foot off the pedal in this war for a minute, we don't coast down the road, We go backwards. That was the tendency for Peter's church, and it is the same for us today. That's why Peter is like a loop track on repeat, just reminding them, put your foot on the gas and don't let up. Pursue godliness, pursue grace, pursue holiness, strive for sanctification. And if ever the church gets a little bit apathetic, if they ever get a little bit cold in their pursuit of Christ, Peter is there again in verse 13. He says to stir them up by way of reminder. The idea here is like uh, poking an an ant pile, a dormant ant pile, right? You see nothing going on. There's just a mound of dirt. Nothing's going on on the surface. And you take a stick, right, and you poke in that ant pile. Are you stepping it on accident? Or like probably most of us have as we were like little kids and we didn't know what a dormant ant pile looked like. We just step in it and chill there because it's soft. This is nice. What happens? A billion ants come out in like three seconds. There's like more ants than people that populate the world in like no time flat. And they're crawling everywhere. And you're, you just got to get out of there. But that's what people, uh, Peter wants to do with his words. He is aiming to stir them up to godly activity and to strive for holiness. That's what Peter wants to do here in 2 Peter chapter 1. To stir up his church and ours to pursue uh, holiness because, as Hebrews says, there is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
And so Peter wants to create a gospel-driven, grace-dependent people that bear fruit in their lives and that glorify God in the world. That's Peter's aim with his words, and it should be ours as well with our words. And so I just want to ask ourselves, kind of by way of application, what is the goal when you open your mouth? Or me, when I open my mouth, not to put me outside of this question, but is there a point to it? Is it on purpose? Peter obviously put a lot of thought behind the words we're reading this morning, and he learned it first and foremost from Jesus himself. Jesus said this in John chapter 12. He said he doesn't speak on his own authority, but the Father who sent him gave him a command what it is he is to say and what it is he is to speak. And therefore, Jesus says, I say only what the Father has told me to say. And so I just wonder how and maybe uh, what would our speech, what would change in our speech if it passed through that filter? And hear me again, I don't say this to shame you. I am the world. I confessed to a brother on Thursday night and just said, man, I was probably a little loose with my tongue there. Maybe not outright sin, but I just get a little excited and my tongue just, you know, it's like fire ready aim. Just there is no filter. There is no thought that is unencumbered. It's just, you know, whatever thing comes to mind comes out of my mouth. But I say that to say, let us be a people with our tongues who stir one another up to strive for holiness and remind each other of the good news of the gospel day after day, week after week, year after year, until we die or Jesus comes, and ta- uh, comes back and takes us home. All right, so that's our word from Peter. Next, let's look at a word on Christ. And this is where Peter shifts from defending the gospel practically by striving for sanctification. That's his means of defending the gospel practically to defending the gospel theologically. So starting in verse 16, Peter starts to stack up these arguments as to why the biblical gospel is true and why every other version of the story is a lie. Look with me at verse 16. Peter says this, For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We'll pause there. So Peter does a couple of things here. First, he calls, all, calls out the false gospels of the day. He calls them cleverly devised myths. And that word cleverly devised there, that phrase, what Peter's getting at is that these are man-made. Okay, These ideas, these false gospels, they were thought up by a person and a sinful one at that. Then Peter calls them myths. The word in the Greek there is this uh, Greek word called muthos. Kind of, you can see the, the, uh, how they got from one to the other there, right? Muthos. But muthos is used five times in the New Testament, and every single time it is clearly used to describe a lie. It literally means false fiction or fable. And so what Peter is doing here is he is calling these false gospels man-made lies. And then he contrasts that to the biblical gospel. And Peter says this gospel, unlike these man-made lies, is God-made. We'll get to that more in our third point. But he says this gospel is also true. It is real. It's valid. It can hold the weight of your hopes and dreams. It can hold the weight of your life. And then to defend this claim, Peter points to his own eyewitness account of Jesus and to one account in particular. We'll keep going. Look at verses 17 through 18. Peter says this, For when he received honor, that's Jesus there he's referring to, and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, that's a reference to God, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So again, Peter says he's an eyewitness in verse 16. This is what he's referring to. He was with Jesus on the mountain. So if you're not familiar, the account that Peter is referencing here is what is known as the transfiguration of Jesus. It's found in Matthew 17. If you know your Bible, you've read through it some, you've probably come across this story. It's a little weird, like Stranger Things. I've never seen it, but that's kind of what I envision if I were to watch Stranger Things. Um, but turn with me, maybe keep a finger in 2 Peter, and then turn over to Matthew chapter 17. We'll look at verses 1 through 8. All right, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Matthew writes this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. So that's the we Peter was talking about in 2 Peter 1, 17. All right, so it's not just Peter who's an eyewitness. You don't believe Peter? Go ask James. Go ask John. They'll tell you the same thing. Then Matthew says, Jesus led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. So aside from God himself, these are like two of the big figureheads in the Old Testament, two of the most prominent characters in the Old Testament. This is like the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament here with Jesus. And Matthew says they were talking with Jesus. And Peter says, Lord, it's awesome that we're here. If you wish, I can make three tents and we can all hang out. There'll be one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants to extend this moment, right? This is amazing. This is the things of dreams. It says, when he was still speaking, behold, a bright bright cloud overshadowed them. I love how God doesn't even wait for Peter to finish his sentence. He's like, we're going on here, Peter, right? And just a bright cloud comes, overshadows them. And a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's a command. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. So, again, cool story. A little strange, but really cool. But the fact that Peter references one story in 2 Peter 1 to validate the person and work of Jesus and chose this one begs the question, why? Why, right? Why not talk about the virgin birth and the Christmas story? Why not talk about one of Jesus's many, many miracles that Peter witnessed firsthand? Why not talk about walking on water? That was pretty cool. Nobody's got that claim to fame except Jesus himself, as far as I know. Why not talk about Christ's sacrificial death or his bodily resurrection? We have a holiday around that one and kind of a a fictional character and chocolate thrown in to boot, right? Why not talk about these other occurrences of Jesus? Why choose the transfiguration? Well, I think Peter chose the transfiguration precisely because of the nature of the gospel that Peter preached to his church. Peter said, I made known to them the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter preached about a peculiar and specific power that was unique to Jesus. And then he talks about the coming of Jesus there. When I I first read this text, I read coming and I thought first coming of Jesus. The coming that Peter is talking about is about the second coming of Jesus. The word for coming there is the Greek word parousia. It's used 18 times in the New Testament and never 
in reference to the first coming of Jesus. It is always used to refer to his second coming. Peter even uses it later in this letter in 2 Peter chapter 3 where it clearly refers to Christ's second coming. And so Peter's public proclamation didn't just look back at Christ's life, death, and resurrection. It looked forward to Christ's sovereign rule and never-ending reign. Peter was preaching that the gospel, or the Jesus, excuse me, who died in humility will one day come back in glory. He preached that the Jesus who came as a servant is coming back as a king. And the experience that Peter witnessed with Christ on the holy mountain, with Moses on his left and Elijah on his right, which speaks to the agreement of both the law represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. And to top it all off, God the Father is speaking words of affirmation over his one and only son. This whole experience confirms, unlike any other Peter ever witnessed, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the King of glory. I think that's why Peter chose the transfiguration, because it speaks of the kingdom to come and the king that is to rule it. Which leads us to our last point, and that's a word on the word, specifically the prophetic words of the Old Testament. Look with me uh, at our text one more time. This time we're looking at verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21. Peter writes this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to what you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture come from, comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that line there. Let that be your aim for the rest of the day. Every time you open your mouth, I'm speaking from God, carried along by the Holy Spirit. We'll exegete that a little more in a second. But again, Peter does two things here in these few verses. First, he validates the prophetic writings. And then he instructs us on, instructs, excuse me, on what we're to do with those prophetic writings. And so Peter starts by saying this in verse 19, that we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So again, got to ask the question, what does that mean, Peter? Right? Because we know it doesn't mean that the prophets spoke more clearly of Christ than the revelation of Christ himself. We just kind of settled that, right? Peter says this tops all, the transfiguration. This shows Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. So that's not what Peter means here when he says that these prophetic writings are more fully confirmed. So what does it mean? Well, I think it means two things. Okay, first, by saying we have the prophetic writings more fully confirmed, Peter means, and he's pointing to the fact that because Jesus came and he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about his first coming, it more fully confirms we can put our hope and trust in all that he's going to be surrounding his second coming. Okay, one commentator pointed out there are three... 300 and I'm not going to like 332 332 Old Testament prophecies pointing to the coming Messiah Jesus checks every box right the odds of that happening are a little bit better than the odds of you walking outside and getting struck by thunder that's right thunder you ever seen snow dogs thunder jack that's my one joke uh, my wife gives me one no more so that was the planned joke you guys are a tough crowd. Um, go watch Snow Dogs, and you're going to laugh really hard when that scene comes up. All right. The second thing Peter's getting at here when he says that we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed 
is that it is, it is God himself who is the author of this gospel. Right? So if you don't believe Peter's own words, you don't believe his eyewitness account, you don't believe James and John, you don't believe the other apostles, you got some beef with the guys, whatever the case may be, believe the God of the universe and his testimony about who this Jesus is. And the God-authored gospel of the Bible stands in direct contrast to the false gospels of the day, and ours as well, for that matter. And so remember back to verse 16. Peter called these uh, false gospels cleverly devised myths, a.k.a. man-made lies. That's the comparison Peter is making here as he speaks to the God-authored nature of the Old Testament prophecies. And then just to prove his point, in case someone were to say, well, we have these prophecies because men wrote them down. Surely they came by their hand, right? They spoke them into being. They were born in their minds. Peter then breaks down the conception of the Old Testament prophecies. Look with me in verse 21. Peter says this, and he says it quite bluntly. No prophecy was ever born in the heart or mind of man, right? He leaves us no chance to confuse what he's communicating there. On the contrary, he says the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the phrase there, carried along, carries with it this idea of a ship sailing on the sea. Right? And so Peter uses not one, but two members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Spirit, to convey both the sovereignty and the validity of the Old Testament prophetic writings. It's as if, in Peter's mind, the prophets of old boarded the boat of God the Father and were blown about by the breath of God the Spirit as they were speaking to the coming of God the Son. And the only active part the prophets played in all of that was they simply got on the boat. <laughs> they just feel like, gee, God's like, just get them on the boat. I'll do everything else. Just, just stay on the boat. Trust me here. And they did, and God took it wherever he wanted to take it. The prophets didn't control the speed. They didn't control the direction, right? They didn't control the sail. None of that. They just got on the boat. Everything else was God-ordained. This is the confidence Peter has in the scriptures, and there has never, ever been a false gospel that can make that claim. Which is why Peter goes back in verse 20, or we're going back in verse 20. Peter puts it before verse 21. But this is why Peter says, pay attention to them, right? As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And this is a metaphor for the second coming. This is the coming Peter was talking about in verse 16. To close, Peter says this quite simply. We live in a very dark world. And there is but one light that exists, and that is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the call on his church and ours is to make every effort to pay attention to this light, cling to this light, pursue this light, love this light, because this light alone is true, and every other version of reality is a lie. Let's pray.